And then our speaker today is Sonia Bossinger from Arias Bossinger. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks for your patience as we're maneuvering through this organization. We're starting to figure out locations and where to have people, and we're so happy that you all came today and we're jam-packed here because I think um, debt collection is an exciting topic, but I think you'll be surprised how it actually affects you all as managers day in and day out more than you probably realize it does. Um, all right, so what are we talking about here today? We have the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which is the federal act. That's United States government. It's in the federal statutes. That's what we're talking about when we say FDCPA. Then our wonderful state of Florida has the Florida Consumer Collections Practices Act. So that's the FCCPA. And we'll talk about some distinctions with these two acts as we move on. Um, when I speak, I love questions, seriously, so if you have them, please ask them. Don't feel shy that you need to wait till the end. I like answering questions. I may turn to some of our panelists. Bill, Seth, and Laura Ballard from our office are here. They're going to throw in some insights, so you all, too, if you have something you want to throw in, please feel free to do it. All right, so why did these two acts come about? Well, our governments, both on the local level, the federal level, wanted to protect consumers. So what these acts do is they create strict liability that as a debt collector, if you violate them, you owe people money for violating these acts. And what we're seeing in practice as attorneys is there are attorneys who are actually, I'm sorry, is that, I'm gonna shut that. Is that better, easier? Okay. Um, there are attorneys, some in our very own backyard here in Brevard County, who are litigating these cases day in and day out against our community associations, against management companies. So you all need to be aware of what the acts say, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. But at the end of the day, what you're going to see when we start going through these lists, a lot of these things that we're going to talk about we're all violating on a daily basis. It's just that that one attorney or those two attorneys haven't called us to the rug. And when they do, it is not a fun experience for any of us. So the federal law, the FDCPA, applies to debt collections, not creditors. So your homeowners associations, your condominium associations, they're the creditors. They're who the monies are owed to. So the FDCPA does not apply to them. However, the Florida Act does apply to anyone attempting to collect a debt. So this is the big distinction here. Okay. So what are the requirements? For both acts, we have a consumer, a person affected by the violation. The consumer debt, it has to be something that arises in a personal family household transaction. So when you purchase a property and you buy into a homeowners association or a condominium association as an owner, that's the transaction because your obligation pursuant to that contract, that declaration, sets the trigger that that makes that a household or a personal debt. The other requirement is that you have a debt collector under the FDCPA and then you actually have to have the violation. The victims that we're talking about today, they cannot be a business or a corporation. 
So a bank, if you're collecting from a bank that's taken title to a property, they cannot allege a fair debt violation against you as a manager because they're a corporation. They cannot be a victim for these purposes. But it can be a third party. If you start harassing someone's spouse who's not an owner or their children and yelling at them, they can still be the victim in an FDCPA or FCCPA case. <clears throat> No contact with anyone but the consumer. What does this mean to you all? Think about it. Do you have grandma who owns the property, her daughter calling you to find out how much grandma owes on a regular basis? Because grandma doesn't understand her, her checking situation. She thought she mailed this check to you. And you as the manager are doing the right thing. You're talking to the daughter because she understands what's going on with grandma's finances. This is a violation unless you have something in your file that says that you have permission from grandma to speak to the daughter. It's technically a violation. So power of attorney? Power of attorney? You, you need to look at it, though. Powers of attorney are only good for certain things. If you look at that power of attorney and it doesn't allow you to speak with a person related to a debt on that property, well, they you, okay. For that. okay, then, then yeah. you would be able to. That's a good, good question. Also, an attorney. You can't speak to the owner's attorney until you have the permission to make sure that that attorney is actually representing them related to that debt. Um, the consumer. That's, that can be anyone, the debtor, the debtor's spouse, the debtor's attorney, the collection personnel, original creditor. You have to have the express permission from the original debtor to speak to any of these people. Can I just chime in real quick? Sure. This can come into context like in a mortgage foreclosure action. Like a lot of times we have past due assessments and you have the mortgage foreclosure action. The attorney will go ahead and represent the, the debtor in the mortgage foreclosure action. They file their notice of appearance, so on and so forth. That's one debt. They call your office, oh yeah, I, I represent this person. Mm -hmm. Well, they represent them in the mortgage for, foreclosure action. Our association assessments, this is a completely separate debt. So they do get upset about it a lot of times when you ask them for the authorization, but ask them for their authorization because one thing to remember about this is you don't have to intentionally violate the statute, and that's what Sonia means when she talks about strict liability. You inadvertently do it. All the time we do it. Like she said, every day there are violations. You don't need intent. Just just the fact that you violated it is enough. So when we have the daughter calling us regarding this, or the realtor who's representing somebody in France who doesn't speak English or whatever else it is, okay, what can we do? I know I tell them I need permission, and frequently I'll get from a known email address that's the owner something, or I'll get a fax or something else with a signature on it thinking that that's going to be sufficient, but is it really sufficient and, you know, what ends do we need to go to to make sure that we have authorization to talk to the daughter? Having something in writing is very important. Um, having that permission, if you notate your file, let's say it is a grandma, she can't send you an email, so you may speak to her and you've spoken to her before, you, you know her voice, you can speak to her and say, do I have permission to speak to your daughter about the debt? At least having something where you're notating your file, spoke to grandmother, she's okay with me speaking to the daughter, <clears throat> excuse me, about the debt related to this issue. So just having something, writing is much better than verbal, but at least having something and you notate it immediately and you're 
your file that that's what happened. So I noticed that sometimes when I have a homeowner come in that's got one of those ubiquitous forms from their mortgage lender saying, I need something or other, and the homeowner doesn't know how to handle it, the, I'll call the mortgage company on their behalf and they'll say, well, is, is the owner there? And they'll ask them security questions, and so we'll be on a three-way call right. so that they can talk to me. Is that the sort of thing that we could also do in this situation? Correct. Correct. Okay, yeah, so we could have Grandma and the daughter on the phone saying this is okay. Yes. Bank, banks get called to the carpet on these FDCPA violations frequently, so anyone that's handling their calls is usually going to ask the questions, I need to have the actual mortgagor on the phone, the person who entered into this mortgage so that they can talk to you. Same reason why they won't talk to us as a law firm. They won't give us the debt of that person who got the mortgage. They won't give us that amount because we don't have the written permission to get it from the mortgage company. And just to add quickly to that, you don't want to become or get into the practice of doing these third party calls. Remember these servicers have recorded lines almost, I don't, I don't know any property managers that have recorded lines. So if you are to get sued and they say, hey, that wasn't me, that was on the line, a mortgage servicer can defend that by bringing in, you know, um, this evidence that they have. We'll have nothing. It's going to be he said, she said, which is evidence, but it's a he said, she said. So you want to try to avoid that situation. And as Sonia stressed at the beginning, you really want that in writing. All right third-party contact. So if you don't have the permission from the debtor to speak to a third party, the only reason you are allowed to contact a third party is to determine the location information, including the place of employment and telephone number of your debtor. Other than that, you have no reason to contact that person. When they ask you, well, what is the nature of this? I don't want to get my brother in trouble. I'm sorry, I, I can't discuss that with you. This is all that we're looking for. And if they don't provide it to you, you have to move on. You can't continue letting them know you're trying to collect the debt. Okay, so under the Florida Act, this is our big problem for community managers. Debt collectors are defined more broadly as any person in any business or any person who regularly collects or attempts to collect debts owed or due. Consumer debt is defined as a transaction in which the money, property, insurance, or services which are the subject of the transaction are primarily for personal, family, or household purposes, similar, similar to the Federal Act. And I have this presentation I can email to anyone that would like it after the fact, just so you don't have to, to, to write everything out. Yes, but I, I have copies of it. I can email you if anybody wants that. Um, so that's similar to the definition in the Federal Act for what is the consumer debt. But the big difference in the Florida Act is who is defined as, and it's any person that's defined as a debt collector. So are you a debt collector under the Florida Act? Okay. Yes. Yes, you are. What does it mean? Well, you're operating as a debt collector when you are contacting these owners and third parties to try to collect those assessments on behalf of the associations that you're working with. So when you are sending communication out under the Florida Act, you need to make sure that you are protecting yourselves because what we're going to go into in a little bit, every single violation of both the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and also the Florida Consumer Collections Practices Act is a $1,000 violation. Some of you have associations that have annual assessments that are $100. 
do you as the manager really want to be <laughs> shelling out a thousand for each of those violations? <coughs> Obviously not. That doesn't make sense for you all. So you are required to give a written notice warning with the initial communication that when you're trying to collect a debt. You have to disclose you're a debt collector and attempting to collect the debt and that any information obtained will be used for that purpose. I'd recommend for all of you to look at your email signature block. That is an easy place to just have this, we call it a maxi Miranda warning, so that you are automatically on notice. If, you're, if you work a lot with email and that's how you send out these communications, that's an easy way to protect yourself by having it in your signature block so that you're protected. The other thing is your phone line. You may want to consider when someone calls your office that you have a recording that first says, we are considered a debt collector under the Florida Consumer Collections Practices Act. Any information obtained on any phone call with any of our property managers may be used for that purpose. So, go ahead. We actually, on the bottom of our statements, we actually have that. And it's actually just a button that we click and it automatically prints on any statement we send out of our office. And if it goes beyond sending a statement, it goes to the attorney. Go ahead, Jane. You want to cover where the association itself is collecting its own debt? Mm -hmm. I generally not consider that to be a debt collector. Correct, because they're the creditor. So, would it be a, a touch for a manager is to rework the letterhead to say the association's name, maybe mailing address and care of the management company, and have it signed on behalf of the association? Is that a way, do you think, to avoid? Um, debt collector status? I think it could, but a lot of the attorneys that are practicing these consumer collections litigation cases against associations, against managers, they're going to argue that as an agent, you're sending it, you are going to be the one processing those funds at the end of the day, and they're going to try to inextricably link you as the manager still to the association. I think it's a, a good protocol to put into place, Jay. I think some of these attorneys are savvy that they might be able to argue around it. And again, it, you're going to be looking at what, what's the judge going to say? Does the judge believe that you still violated the act? <clears throat> all right, so we talked about this a little bit. Um, tenants, you all have a lot of tenants who may contact you and say, Hey, I just received this letter that we're supposed to start paying rent to you, association, because the owner owes you money. Have you all done any of those? Okay. So the statute, both in the HOA Act and the Condo Act, allows associations to siphon the rent from a tenant when the owner has not paid any monetary obligation to the association. So a lot of associations, the management companies, are sending out these letters demanding the rent, and then the tenant calls you. Um, we have some that call every single month and say, please, just give me a roundabout figure. How many more months I have to keep paying you debt? Vanessa's laughing because we have someone that calls us every single month with that same question. Just give me, is it 1,000? Is it 2,000? I'm sorry, Mr. Smith. Again, we cannot release that information to you. You are not the debtor. We can just tell you, we will send you a letter notifying you that you can stop paying this rent when it's paid in full. But until that point, you are to continue paying rent. So be careful with these third parties. They're going to try to bend your arm and ask you, please, 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 I really need to know this information. Or, I'm planning to buy this property. Shouldn't I be told how much is owed? 
No, we can't release that information to you. You're not the debtor. Again, just, just be careful, be wise with who you're releasing this information to. So one thing with renters, too, I would add, is that if you get to the stage of evicting a renter where the renter is not tendering their rent for some reason, I've had this happen, uh, the first thing you have to do is issue a three-day notice because the statute says you have to follow the Landlord-Tenant Act. And the three-day notice is a debt collection notice. So, so unless, as Jay pointed out, the association actually signs that three-day notice, uh, it, that three-day notice should have the Maxi Miranda on it, so it actually turns into a 30-day notice. Yeah, and, and, that's, and, and the, the caveat to that would be if you have a law firm that prepared your tenant demand letter or as a management company, if you prepared the tenant demand letter and it already had, you only have to give that warning as the initial communication. But Seth's absolutely right. If it's the three-day notice is your initial communication and it wasn't part of your tenant demand letter where you're not asking for a figure, then um, that would be something that you'd absolutely have to include. That's I have a quick question on that. What happens when you get a tenant that they've paid the, the past debt, they've actually paid it in full, however, the owner's still not paying, so we still collect their rent because of the monthly HOA fees. What happens to the remaining amount of that collected amount? Do we automatically send it to the owner? Do we keep it on file and then, you know, that's our question is, is how do we, how do we determine? Because we're never going to release that tenant from paying because the, the owner still doesn't pay monthly. Right. With with that, I believe the statute used to address that. I think they took it out when they put in any monetary obligation, if I don't remember correctly. But um, I don't think it specifically says that you have to, what number you have to return to the owner. You absolutely keep it as a credit on the owner's account, but there becomes a point where you, an owner is able to get that money if it's in excess of what the assessments are. They can get a refund from the association for amounts that you're holding. So those owners, for example, that pay a year in advance, they're technically entitled at any point to ask for their money back that hasn't been used up for their regular assessments. Okay. I kind of take the position that once the, the delinquency reaches zero, you're done collecting rent. Yeah. yeah. And so if the break even, you collect a thousand dollar check, but there are only 500 delinquent, to me the buzzer goes off, the rent, you need to release the tenant from paying the association, and then the owner's entitled to the difference the 500 in that account. Yeah. That's kind of how I did it. But then the next month you're in the same position. Well, then you do it again. Once they're going quick, you start crossing new. But I don't think you can continue to collect and accrue some large credit within the past. I, I agree with you, Jay. I think the only time your scenario works, Lynn, is if the other month's worth of assessment came due and they just paid rent, well, now you have another delinquency. Right. But if it's ever gone to zero, you're technically required to send them a seat. We're done collecting rent. But also now you need to start paying rent again. You'd have to redo the 14-day the notice again. I would think that it would be similar to when we sent something to the attorney for collections and the attorney finally resolves it and then sends the manager a payout with the it's paid through this date, now start paying the association directly. And I, I would think that it would be akin to that, that when they've paid it, then we have to start over. 
after that, just just like you would have to do if they, you know, again stopped paying and had to send it to the attorney a second time. Did you have a question? Initially, when that's at the attorney's office, they have a lien for an exact amount that they would delete for. Obviously, that amount's going to be changing. But I, I agree with Levine because in the attorneys I worked for, once you satisfy that lien, that lien needs to be let go and you start mm -hmm. this whole process mm -hmm. once again. Absolutely. And have to go from day one of doing all the initial letters to them and everything else. Right. So. Same thing with a covenant violation. Once exactly. it's corrected and they exactly. do it again, you have to send another letter, unfortunately. And it, it seems like a huge waste of time, but you do have to do it. Board meetings. Encourage your boards not to publicize who the deadbeats are. Not a good idea because if they're disclosing this information or you're disclosing this information at a board meeting and that happens to not be the exact amount that that person owes, then all of a sudden, you violated the Florida Consumer Collections Practices Act and also think of ways that you can identify those owners who are delinquent without using their names whether it be the last couple digits of an account number that you have with your company or whether it's a, a lot number lot number something that's not their name but you can use because remember, when you have the board meetings, you also have other people who mm -hmm. typically attend those meetings. So now you're publishing that right. debt to a well, third party. I usually party. say like the third one down, but I, here it says you can't use a property address either. Well, the, I they can't identify. Yeah, like they can you identify. Yeah. You're okay. publishing. I have a question on this. Sure. Okay, so so the the con the reverse part of this, and this is where it really becomes a conflict in the board meetings is they frequently want to discuss the AR report, number one, and number two, technically the members of the association own that report anyway. So is there some disclaimer you could make at a board meeting, even maybe on the agenda, that says something like this Maxine Miranda thing that says, look, if this is discussed, it's meant for the membership only who has a right to this information, and it's not intended to be any kind of definitive number or something like that because you're going to have, you're going to have board members regardless of how educated the management companies get we're going to have board members who simply say I don't care what you say I'm going to talk about this anyway yeah. you know how can we protect ourselves and coach them into protecting themselves in that situation knowing that when you publish those monthly financial reports, the general membership does have a right to those AR reports okay. because that's part of the official records. Even though it's part of the official records, remember, you're not publishing it. They can do a records inspection. They could come in and look at the records. That's not the association publishing. When you put it on your agenda and if you have a name or you have something identifying that debt with an owner, you are publishing that at a meeting to the public. So there's a very big difference when the members come in and inspect records and you actually publishing it. So they can get the same information, but you're not actually doing the act. And remember, it's a strict liability statute. So, okay, fine, you don't care. No, you can be dinged $1,000 for that. And that's something the court will take into consideration because they now it'll come out in court that you were aware of this and you continue to do that practice anyway. So that's why we recommend everybody typically has account numbers. Just use the last two digits of the account numbers because who's going to know that account number unless somebody disclosed it or somebody came in and looked at the records, but that's not you publishing it.
And, and those people coming in, the owners coming in to inspect the official records, and then if they decide to then publish it, well, th that has nothing to do with the association. That's their choosing to possibly defame someone, you know, using libel, putting it out there in writing. But as far as the association, you're limiting that liability because you're not publishing it out in the meeting. Okay, you know? so for instance, if, some, if we have a realtor who says, I need the last four months worth of financial statements, what I tell them is I say, I can't give that information to you, but if the seller of the property sends me something in writing saying I can Correct. give it to you, then I can give it to you. Correct. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if we publish it, a lot of us have password-protected client login websites. We can publish those kind of things to the membership-only portion of the website where the members of the association, and if they give out their password to somebody else, that's not really the association's responsibility because we've published it to a members-only website. Would that be correct? But is that only for the member to look at their own account or to mm -hmm. be able to look for at For the everyone? financial statements for the association. Oh, financial statements for the association. That include it, an AR report. Okay. I think we, we should talk about that afterward. We'll talk about that. I, I have concerns because you're publishing it, and what if you had checks that weren't necessarily deposited when you had published that report, but you had the check, it wasn't applied, so now the debt is inflated more than what is owed, so it's technically putting you all at risk. But how are they going to prove something like that? If they say, well, I, I made a payment, where was, you know what I mean? They're, but that's just a timing matter, though, correct. between when you receive it and when you post it, when you deposit it. But you'll see with some of these cases, a dollar makes a difference. Wow. A penny so makes a, a penny makes a difference. Really? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so, like on our website, because we have a website also, we do not include the delinquency report. We just don't. We have the balance sheet, we have the budget variance, shows them exactly where they're at. We even have the reserve breakdown. We do not include delinquency reports on our website at all. Or to any owners, you know, that we, like at meetings, will produce a copy of the financials. But it's strictly the balance sheet and the budget variance. We don't release delinquency reports on individual owners. You know, I, I agree with that. So you should have filters on your website because we have board only information that they can access and then the members have information they can access and we give a financial summary to the owners and we give the full financials to the board. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. That's what's on our and side. That's how it should be set up. Yeah. The board's allowed to have the full because they're right. conducting business. So right. it's a filter built into ours that the board can see all this information yeah. but you as an individual only see your own. Okay. All right. Well, let's well let's get into some of the case law. Laura, I'm going to turn it over to you for a second regarding the Harris case. Okay. Harris v. Liberty Community Management. Um, this is where the court analyzed and determined whether um, a management company will fall under the federal Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. And what it boils down to is going to be your contract, the management contract, and your duties with the association. Um, and what your obligations are under the contract. If, if collections of an assessment is just incidental and you have a bunch of other duties and we'll go through the list of them, then you're not going to be named a debt collector. However, you do have a few associations that will just hire the property manager for collections. Um, for accounting. For accounting. You're most likely going to fall under fair debt collections practices because that's your only duty. So Harris v. Liberty, um, this is what the court took into um, consideration. I don't know if I, if it's yeah. part of the, okay. Um, number one is the property manager's sole and exclusive agent um, for the association. 
Um, does the property manager, do they have the ability to enter into contracts for regular maintenance of the common areas, facilities, including lawn care, pool maintenance, and extermination? Also, um, this is typically with townhomes where maybe you have the, the huge water, water meter, um, but are you able to enter into um, negotiations with various companies for electricity, gas, fuel, oil, water? This happened to be, I believe, a Georgia case where they have a lot of <coughs> water in these facilities. You don't see it so much in, um, in Florida. I've only seen it with the water. Um, but you purchase and maintain property insurance. Um, or other liability insurance on behalf of the association, such as your general, your board, um, those type of insurance policies. Um, also bonds. Do you purchase the bonds, shop around bonds for the association? Um, does the property manager um, investigate all accidents and claims and actually file the claims on behalf of the association with the insurance company? Does the management company prepare the budget for the association and submit submit it to the association's board. If you hire a CPA or anything like that, does the management company um, negotiate, hire, find um, the CPA to do that? Maintain the books, records of the association, and you establish a financial accounting of systems for the association affairs. Is that a duty under the contract? Do you keep the bank accounts for the association? Do you make the deposits, collect money, um, pay the various vendors, so on and so forth, on behalf of the association. Do you prepare the monthly financial reports um, showing the association's annual budget, income, and expenditures to date? Do you receive and reconcile the monthly bank statements for the association? Um, do you handle the general ledgers um, for the association? Do you assist the association with filing their yearly taxes? Um, if you don't assist them, do you assist fighting a CPA? Do you have the authority to find one to do that? Um, then collection of assessments. Management as the um, agent of the association, are you able to request, demand, collect, receive, invoice um, for the assessments and take action to recover um, delinquent assessments? So those, are, those were all the factors in this particular case. So you have a big checklist. The more duties that you have under your contract, the better you are because the most likely you will not be found a debt collector because simply <coughs> the collection of the assessments is it's incidental because you have ten other duties that you do. But if that's your sole duty, maybe you have one or two other ones, there's a good possibility you would be. Right. So a lot of you that take on the, the associations just for accounting, be careful because you're likely a debt collector under the FDCPA if it's a huge part of your business there is to collect these assessments day in and day out from these owners. And, an, and another thing, um, a lot of the attorneys that, that handle the plaintiff's side, side, they specialize in this area. So if they can double hit you, that's 2000 bucks. Um, they're going to try to do it. Right. So they get 1000 under the Federal Act and 1000 under the Florida Act per violation. So you can see how this adds up quickly because under the Florida Act, you all are always considered a debt collector because it's any person. Under the federal debt, it depends on your contract, whether the activities that you have are incidental to the debt collection, or if debt collection is incidental to your contract, you just it's another service you offer, but it's not your main duty. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. By the $1,000 hit, in my mind, is the least of your problem. Because when that's raised a defense, Guarantee they're not going to want to pay any attorney's fees as, as 
to collect uh, for us to collect that debt because they know they can go after the thousand dollars and they can get attorney's fees and costs under the act as well. And if the if that became the central issue in the case, that could put prevailing party status on the owner. Well, it's one side. You're going to end up paying yes. way more than the thousand. So you're kind of almost cutting our legs from under us as attorneys, and we have to negotiate that defense right. on your behalf and have to waive certain things that you would want to keep that in mind. If this came, wouldn't our professional liability insurance cover this? Probably not. No. Well, that's what I wanted to ask Trevor, if he could explain that, how this at, is impact. As attorneys, and I'll, I'll let Trevor talk about it for a second, um, as attorneys, I have to seek out a special malpractice policy to include debt collection, because uh, we're always going to be debt collectors sure. under FDCPA and FCCPA, because we're, we're not related to the creditor other than being their attorney for the association. Well, I guess so, what I'm asking is, in addition to having this laundry list of things, would the professional liability assist in working through that assuming that we became the subject of a lawsuit if they got sued for we a got sued fair for debt or a florida consumer collections practices act violation does their policy professional liability for your that? personal management policy like correct you as your for, for, for our management company has Possibly, a professional there, liability. there are a lot of exclusions sometimes for debt collection so uh -huh. you got to be very careful yeah. to say specifically yours would be hard for me to say without looking at your Policy. Sure. I'm just thinking in general because this sounds like it's really Russian roulette on any it given is. day. It absolutely With 90% of what we do. Yeah. <laughs> and why would we ever fall, fall under the federal thing? We fall under the state thing first, correct? You're always going to fall under Florida as a management company right, so because you're any person collecting a debt. Right. The issue with the federal act is if for those associations that you're just doing accounting work and collecting assessments, you're likely under the federal act for them. Okay. Um, but yeah, absolutely go back and look at your policies, talk to your agents. It may require an additional rider to your policy. I know for our malpractice, that's what we had to do. We had to disclose that we do debt collection and, and our premiums are a lot higher than they oh, normally yeah. would be oh, yeah. because of that. Okay, so I just wanted to add um, something Jay said. We'll get into damages at the end, but I could tell you this is all about attorney's fees because, as Seth said, there is no reciprocity for attorney's fees. So you're going to have to defend, and even if you win, you're most likely not going to get attorney's fees. I don't want to get into the details. There's bad faith, you know, that you can attempt to recoup your attorney's fees, but it's a very high, high burden to to prove that that claim was brought in bad faith. And that's the only way that you're going to be able to recoup attorney's fees. So most likely you're going to be defending this and paying out of pocket. Mm -hmm. So one of the cases that happened back in 1998 was Clayton versus Brian. And basically the court said that FDCPA does not apply to condominium assessments. So this seems great for all of us. It's in the 5th District Court of Appeals, which is what we're in here in Brevard County. The problem is most of the other circuits are not following this case, or they're finding ways to distinguish this case and still argue that association condominium assessments are um, under are considered a consumer debt under the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. Not only that, but if you get one of these cases against you, they are normally filed in federal court. So they're not going to be bound by the, the fifth DCA decision out of Daytona. It's, it's a bummer. It seems great, but it, it is a bummer case. Um, so what are some of the prohibited acts? 
pretending to be a police officer. Please don't do that. Obviously, there's other repercussions. <laughs> Using or threatening to use force or violence. I have worked somewhere before where I, I heard a paralegal say, and she didn't work there much longer after this, where um, she was talking to an owner on the phone, and they got very belligerent with her, and she was, she was a firecracker, and she said, well, you better put your mattress on your car because you're losing your house real soon. Oh, <laughs> and we said, oh, thank goodness the statute of limitations period passed and the firm did not get sued at that point. But be careful what you say to these owners. It's better to terminate the call than to say something you may regret and can be used against you later. Um, communicating or threatening to communicate with your employer about the debt unless they have taken a judgment against you. And if you have disputed the debt, reporting or threatening to report derogatory information. So when you send that initial notice, that person has the right to dispute the debt and you have to provide them verification of that debt. So if they've disputed it, you can't say, well, now I'm going to report to your employer, oh, I'm going to spread false information about you, or I'm going to spread information that you have this debt to other people. Once they've disputed it, all collection actions must stop until you have verified that debt. Just can I just comment sure. on that? Um, if you're using a company, because there was a company that was had services where they'll do the reporting to the credit bureau, just remember they can hold the association liable if they yeah. report incorrect information to the bureau. And this would be one of them. As a property manager, and you're using this company, you would have to notify them that that dispute that debt is in dispute so then they can notify the credit agency that it's in dispute. If there's a little drop off in that communication there, then you have a violation. All right, let's talk about some of the fun cases. Sunga versus Broom, I hate this case. It's a Virginia case, but it's a federal case, so it affects us. Um, three letters sent by a law firm. But this is to show you the distinction with what equals a violation. Three letters sent by a law firm, so obviously they're a debt collector under the Federal Act, and they sent a demand letter, additional letter, and a payoff letter. The court held that the assessments are consumer debts, so they were obligated to pay them. The owner was, the debtor was, at the time that they closed on their home, so it was a consumer debt under the FDCPA. What were the damages? Well, let's see. On the first letter, the law firm miscalculated interest by a dollar forty-one thousand dollars. Wow. Second letter, one cent, thousand dollars. Third letter, they called, they collected an attorney turnover fee <laughs> that the management company had on its ledger that there was nothing in the contract that allowed them to collect. There was no basis for it. It's just something the management company put on their ledger without it being part of the management contract. It, this law firm reciprocated, sent it out. We need to collect this $25 turnover fee and another $1,000. So right here, and this wasn't in Florida, so we're not looking at $6,000. Um, this was a federal case. It was $3,000 for those three violations. With attorney's fees and everything, these people asked for over $25,000 for these three violations. So you can see how minimal this is. Even though they <laughs> owed money. And they owed money. They, just, were, we they, made, were the made, they made a mistake on calculating mm -hmm. the interest. But that doesn't seem fair. So these are the Nothing same type of mistakes fair. that you all can be held liable for under the Florida Act. As you can see, one penny. 
How many times do we miscalculate oh, one fine. penny? Every day. It happens all the time. Absolutely. We all do it all the time. We all are humans and things happen. Mm -hmm. So these are the type of things. And what I am seeing and what Laura is seeing, Seth is seeing, Jay is seeing, these attorneys that are doing this are finding whole associations who are sending out mass amounts of letters with these sorts of mistakes in them and going after them, both the management companies and the attorneys that are handling this, because it's easy money. For these three violations on that one owner, these people were asking for over $25,000. they are actually not just being done against collections that may you were involved in, but it could be a class action Correct. suit where they're trying to go after every money that was collected from <coughs> as far back as the limitations will allow you, right. uh, which means your predecessors may have caused you a problem. How often do you take over an account? The markets are a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Be careful that they're not such a mess. And, and I see this day in and day out, and you all get aggravated because I or my assistant will send you an email and says, thank you for this. We see there is a large carryover balance. We need to know where this carryover balance comes from. You know why? Because we don't want to violate this. It's not worth it for us to pay $1,000 for each of those violations. Because guess what happens? You all take over a new account, you carry over the $2,587.04 balance. Nobody knows where that came from, but then what everyone starts doing, you start collecting interest on that amount. And that also happened in this case. They were compounding interest on interest as well, which was a whole separate violation that came up, not uh, in, in, in what I'm going to talk about today. But that happens all the time. So when we're asking you, we need a breakdown, everyone's going to have to search through their records and find a breakdown. Otherwise, it does not make sense to hold yourself liable because you're printing it on the ledgers and then for us to collect it because we're collecting an amount that we have no background for. But do you know how hard that is to explain to an association because we've recently had to do that? Um, explain to an association they really don't owe five thousand dollars they only owe three hundred dollars because all those other charges were not you know legally applied to the account yeah you know and they're like well but what they have no they don't owe you that money yeah. it was misrepresented by you know previous management or whatever but yeah it happens a lot all the time yeah. every single day I see it every single day the large carryover balances mm -hmm. so doing your due diligence when you are taking on a new association making sure you have that background information protects you because if you're not taking the extra step to figure out where that balance came from or at least keep the ledgers for your records of where that balance came from and making sure you're not compounding interest that will protect you and, and your company for everything that you're doing because the other part of these acts not only is the company responsible so let's say you work for a management company and you say oh well Leland will be responsible. Well, guess what? All of these acts, because it's strict liability, you as the person sending the letter, my paralegal would still be responsible. That's how far this goes. And this, the session today is not to scare you. I know it, you're probably all like, oh my gosh, why did we come today? It's to educate you on what can you do in your business to minimize these risks and these claims from coming back to bite you. And they will likely come because at some point we're all humans, we're all going to overcharge by one cent and you're going to have that jerk attorney on the other side that finds it or finds 10 of them where you That's accidentally did it. percent per annum. Yeah. So what it sounds like is actually as a CAM community of, of firms and, and CAMs that we should probably go and talk to the principals of each of our companies and say, look, 
we need to keep financial information as far back as we can because if we have to turn over this property or if a property gets turned over to us right. we need as much of that background and if we can as a community in Brevard say we're going to make a commitment to keep as much of that information and pass it along and maybe even keep a backup for a year or two in case something happens mm -hmm. then we'll be protecting each other and ourselves right because i will tell you there's one attorney in this county and he's he's vigorous some of us in this room have come across him and he is representing owner after owner after owner after owner and going after management companies and law firms so, so one, just be mindful so one thing about education too that about as far as getting yourself out of a lawsuit and one of the few defenses it is a bona fide error defense and one way to allege that defense is showing that you have gone through efforts to educate your staff and the whole office on this act such as we do have procedures in place where we told employees not to speak to third parties about debt etc and so that can be helpful in defending these suits. Having this part of your CEU record, oh, I attended this, you know, I understood it, and that's absolutely Might not work, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, something I just want to add about that case, it doesn't matter if your errors in favor of the debtor. They did touch on that in yeah. the analysis. They don't care. It's still false misrepresentation yeah. of the debt. We undercharge a violation. Yes, if you yes. undercharge, the court said it's still a violation. Yes. Because you're, you're it's a, um, what was it, a false mis misrepresentation of the debt. It fell under that category. This has gotten so pervasive. I'm retiring. Um, no. Jay, Jay, Seth, Laura, and I are all part of, under the Condominium and Plan Unit Development Committee, there's, there's a subgroup of attorneys that talk about these type of issues. There's a lot of attorneys in this area of law that are refusing to calculate interest, or they just attach your all's ledger because they don't want to take on the risk anymore. Well, I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, as a management company, we, we swap contracts all the time. It's just mm -hmm. the nature of our business. We get false data all the time mm -hmm. from the previous company. Is it, are we responsible for that false data? We can't go back years and straighten up a, bunk, a bunch of mess. If you're collecting a debt, that's... So we got to be very careful. And you got to be careful, too. And this is an entirely different topic, but it brings litigation out. When you take records from another um, property manager, you should have some sort of checks and balances in place to try to at least confirm the accuracy of those records. Um, because if you were to ever go to trial on this, and I think Seth, Seth knows about this, if you go to trial and try to get these records in and you're collecting based off of somebody else's records, there is a different um, line of questioning that goes into that. And you have to have something in place to verify that. And if you didn't verify that, I can pretty much guarantee you're going to lose in court because evidence isn't going to come in. And now you have possible violations because your records were not accurate and... But that's an impossible task. I was say, it's easier said that's easier done. said. That's no, an impossible task. We can only be responsible for what we do. Yeah, right. And, and right. that's why groups like this are so important because you all get to talk to one another. What can we do together to try to minimize our risk as a whole? Because you're absolutely right. You're absolutely absolutely right. You all working together is what's going to minimize the risks for all the management companies in this county because you all are making sure your accounting and books are in order, what you're turning over are in order, 
because you may still have liability out there for letters that you sent because under the federal act, the statute of limitations is one year. <coughs> under the Florida act, it's two years. You may not have that account anymore, but it's something that you sent out two years ago and all of a sudden you're getting sued, or less than two years because of the statute of limitations. Okay, so I have another question related to that, okay? Um, we're talking about the verification of turnover information that, that was brought up. If in the minutes of every meeting there is a review of last month's financial report and the board motions and accepts that financial report as bona fide and then that becomes part of the official record, can that in some way, shape, or form be a, a form of a shield to the management company that this board has accepted all those financials to, let's say, December 31st, that, and we took over January 1st, and everything that we got that was valid for December 31st had been voted and motioned and accepted by the board of directors as valid, would that be sufficient validity to help us to say, okay, we took it over, and the association, the responsible entity for the association has, in their meeting minutes, has validated this set of financial reports is that in any way? How many boards, though, vote? In All of ours. Second, but I'm saying and understand what their motion. They, they don't understand it, but they vote for it. Okay, so th that that goes back to: Does anybody understand any portion of any law? <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is true. You can read. So, it, you so yes, that might protect you from the bona fide error. You're collecting a debt. The actual creditor has shown you that it's valid. You have proof that it was valid. Yes, that may protect you. But again, you're going to have an you owner, a plaintiff's attorney on the other side arguing, absolutely not. You should have known that this was invalid. It didn't match the budget, for example. Go ahead, Jim. This may be a good time to have a discussion as what your ledger should and I was should just not gonna... contain. I don't know if I'm preempting where you're going to go next. <laughs> That's exactly where I was going next. Um, I, I don't think you should list interest and late fees by number. You should say plus interest and late fees because we don't rely on your calculations. We have our own program. Because <laughs> if we just take your numbers and pluck it into our letter and you're wrong, we become wrong. Right, correct. So I, so I think those things shouldn't be posted. You may have other thoughts about what else should not be. I was going to go over one more case and then I was going to let Bill educate us on some ledger information. Fine. Okay, so here we have an 11th Circuit federal case. Was a fine owed, it was a fine owed by an owner to the HOA. The association approved the fine, and the court held that both the federal and the Florida Act applied to fines because, according to this declaration for this homeowners association, the fine became an assessment and was collectible against an owner like an assessment. I will tell you a huge percentage of HOAs have this language within their declaration. And it's okay language because it allows you to actually lean and foreclose proceeding that way once you know you comply with the statutory over $1,000. So what the court said is as long as the transa transaction creates an obligation to pay, a debt is created. Therefore, in this case, the association lost because the association and the law firm were trying to collect this fine. And the court didn't rule on whether the HOA was liable, what Jay had brought up earlier. They didn't rule on that issue, but they did rule that it was the fine was a debt subject to both the Federal and the Florida Act. I noticed everybody got sued in that one. The property manager, the association, the law firm. Yeah. 
Well, they'll just this everyone. Because everyone that perpetuated the, the violation, $1,000, $1,000, Additional prohibited acts, harassing consumers, contacting them between the hours of 9 p.m. and 8 a.m. without their permission. Be careful on those. If you're, a, if you're an early bird getting to the office really early, don't call any of your owners prior to 8 a.m. to talk about whatever debt that they owe to the association. Holding yourself out as an attorney, um, disclosing information to someone other than the debtor or his family that affects the debtor's reputation. Um, these are all additional prohibited acts. Claiming, attempting, or threatening to enforce a debt without knowledge that the debt is not legitimate. Using instruments, forms that only attorneys are authorized to prepare as a guise when communicating with a debtor. This is one of the reasons we see that the Florida Supreme Court, when analyzing what property managers are allowed to do, you're not able to actually prepare that claim of lien, which is a good thing because that is a form, technically under the statute, that you're subjecting this owner to and you would be held liable under both the unauthorized practice of law but, or unlicensed practice of law as well as uh, FDCPA, FCCPA um, violation. Refusing to identify yourself. Make sure you tell them who you are. Mailing communications in an envelope or postcard that has writing that's calculated to embarrass a debtor. I've had boards try to do this. I, I tell them not to. Oh, hey, deadbeat, pay your bill. Uh, you know, things like that. Be, just notify your boards if it's going to end up coming Sell to your, your office. Your yeah. fees, no. Put your mattress on your car. Yeah. <laughs> Communicating with a debtor whom you know is represented by counsel with respect to this debt. And Laura brought that up earlier. Just because they're representing someone in the mortgage foreclosure, unless there's a pending lien foreclosure where you know they're representing them for the association's debt, make sure you're getting something in writing that they're representing them with regard to the Hopefully debt. You didn't already, what about people that are in bankruptcy? Mm -hmm. Bankruptcy is a big red stop sign. Yeah. Do not do anything. Do not send out letter ledgers trying to collect that <laughs> debt. It is a stop sign. Please don't do it. That's a good point. I didn't know if you don't care. Go ahead, Jane. Um, a lot of my clients like to post the deadbeat list, as you call it. And I remember many years ago there was a New Jersey case, but I can't find it. They actually held that to be an invasion of privacy, even if the amount was correct. Right. So, but may want to speak about. Yeah, not only is it an invasion of privacy, you could be violating the Florida Act. It, you know, any day if that information is not correct. And again, Furthermore, as part of damages, you can claim damages for intentional or negligent infliction of emotional distress. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure about that. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. so any educated so, real. I mean, it's owner, it's there. Any, any educated owner with these laws would seek out an attorney and yeah, start a, start a absolutely. Well, don't spread the word. This is a secret meeting. <laughs> this deadbeat attorney can't can't disclose it. Yeah. <laughs> Who do we need to? We need to talk about the mail. We throw it in the So, so this is what Seth was talking about: the punitive damages, um, as well as the actual damages and the statutory damages per violation up to one thousand dollars. But remember, that's per federal and Florida. If you're bound by both. 
Um, and the rest of it's awarded at the judge's discretion. If you did something really egregious, that judge may go crazy on that award. And it's per violation, so if you have three letters. This is worse than dealing with Three phone calls, $1,000 each time. Uh, recovery of fees, we talked about this already. You can only recover them, even if you win, if you can prove that they brought the case against you in bad faith. All right, so what I wanted to talk about is I'm going to turn it over to Bill for a couple minutes. Um, when you all are compiling your ledgers, being careful, what we are talking about with disclosing those AR reports, if you have checks laying on your desk that that owner paid and have not been deposited, you need to have a system in place in your office to make sure that you're timely depositing those and attributing them to the accounts. Because otherwise, every single time you're posting that AR report and that owner is published or somehow gets wind of it, that's a fair debt or Florida Consumer Collections Practices Act violation because that's not how much they owe. You've overinflated the amount that they owe. We also talked about you can underinflate. Let's say you charge them less interest than what's owed. You know, there, there's a lot of this. You really need to make sure that you're educating your staff because a lot of times we have a, a clerical person who's entering this data into the computer or preparing your ledgers. Be careful with that. Make sure that they understand what they're doing. That those, you know, silly thumbs when you put in the wrong digits, that's a violation. I guess, okay, because I have one of those people that yeah. put everything in. <laughs> um, but does it not also still fall back on the managers to review your statements before they're sent Absolutely. out to make sure they're accurate? Absolutely. You know, uh, or even financial reports for that matter. Yeah. You know, because we have two people that review the financials, but really the managers are the only ones that really look at them. The other yeah. one just initials because, and won't initial it if, like, my initials aren't on it. She won't initial it. So right. it's just funny. Right, right, yeah, and making sure that you're crediting write-offs correctly. Mm -hmm. I was going to turn it over to Bill eventually here. Go ahead, Bill. Talk to us about ledgers and putting them together. You can stay out there, Bill. Well, you mean they don't just stay on the books for I'll just broadcast my speaker, mm -hmm. microphone. Well, clearly Seth Chipman is a better panelist here because Seth is over here bragging on himself about how he ate all this Italian food, and oh, yeah. managed to get no red sauce on his outfit. <laughs> well, <laughs> so Seth gets me in that regard. Okay, really important stuff here is CAMS. So you need to be good stewards for your associations. So the starting point with all this bad debt stuff is recording an allowance account on the books. All right, the preferred method is the allowance method as opposed to the direct write-off method. So what you do is CAMS, you get an idea, and it might be partly subjective and partly objective, of what your write-offs, your bad debts will be for the year. And so the way that you record that on the books of the association is you record an allowance for doubtful accounts, okay? That allowance account is a contra um, asset account, the asset account being accounts receivable. What does that allowance account do? it devalues the receivable because the receivable shouldn't look at 100%. It should be less than 100%. So what you're doing is bringing that value down to a more real, realistic value by recording this allowance account. And so you're crediting your, your contra account, which is the allowance account, and then the other side of that entry is a debit to your profit and loss or your income statement. And that's in bad debts expense. So that's how you estimate your 
uncollectible receivables for the year. Um, this is called a write-down, okay, of your AR. Then there comes a time where there might be a write-off. You know that you aren't going to collect from a particular owner or some a batch of owners. So at that time, you're going to go ahead and debit your allowance account, okay? And then you're going to credit your AR because you just want to get it out of the AR period. So you go back to the AR, the main account, and just reduce the AR itself and take it out of the allowance account. Now, if there's a subsequent collection on that bad debts, what happens is you can reverse the prior two entries, the write-down entry and the write-off entry. This is the hard way to do it. <laughs> there's an easier way to do it. But you can reverse those two entries, and then you get your cash. Okay, so you debit your cash account, and, you, and then you can credit AR, all right? But the easiest way to do it is just debit your cash account and credit your allowance account. It really has the same conclusion as far as what your balance sheet looks like, your equity position, your asset position, all of it. It's going to be the same outcome. So the easiest method is not to reverse the prior two entries, just debit cash that you get for that subsequent collection and credit the allowance account. There's another method, and this method is the preferred method because there's proper matching here of expenses with income. So when you record these receivables for assessments, that's hitting your income statement. So there's member assessments on your income statement as revenue. So by recording this possible write-down, you're recording something else called bad debts expense on the mm -hmm. income statement. All right, that's bringing that income down to a more realistic, you know, component. So because ultimately you've got your revenues minus all your expenses, of which bad debts is one of them, and then you get net income. So in the end, you have a more realistic net income for the year. The other method the unpreferred method, which is not a pro proper matching of revenues and expenses, is a direct write-off method. So in that method, you find out basically um, somebody's not going to pay. So at that time, you know they're not going to pay, you just write it off as a bad debt expense, and then you credit AR. And, you know, when I say credit AR, or maybe putting something back on AR, you're looking down to the individual ledger, too because you have a full accounts receivable ledger made up of your owners of what they owe or what they prepaid maybe. We're talking about that earlier, the prepaid. And that's a liability owed back to the owners. But so when you credit AR, debit AR, I'm talking about going to the individual owner and crediting or debiting their account. And all the accounts cumulatively make up the AR balance, of course. So that's what you're doing. Um, and then if you have a recovery under the write-off or the direct write-off method, you're going to debit AR, get it back on the books, and credit bad debts expense. And then you're going to record the cash that you received as a debit and credit AR. Um, so that's how it's done. So, But all this is done, again, through individual accounts that roll up into the main account. Question on you would have a question. Of course. Um, as a manager who does a lot of bookkeeping and accounting. Her mom's a CPA. So yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, 
So I, I follow you on this, right. but I also know several PAMs who have an accounting department or they have a bookkeeper right. and they are, the CAMs themselves are so busy with the boards and the facilities and everything else, they get a chance to eyeball the financial statements and if I didn't really know what you were talking about, Bill, you lost me about the third sentence. So yeah. is there any way we can get these in some kind of graphic format sure. from you attached to Sonia's presentation sure. so that we can turn around and say Absolutely. this is how we, can share we need to department. we can at least put our accounting department or our bookkeeper and say you know and if you have a question you can talk to CPA or to right. you I'll or to somebody to else about how to do this because Absolutely. then the, those of us who might not understand all the debits and credits and ARs and bad right. debts and stuff would right. be able to at least have something that we see how it would look on the financial sure. statements. Sure. That would be great. Because you're right. You have different departments. I'll get it all typed up nifty <laughs> and make it easy. I think the bottom line is because we are not wanting to put interest yeah. and late fees on past due accounts because that's where our biggest problem is is that transfer Right. properties right. you know from one management to another management is having to explain all those back fees that we can't explain because we don't know how they're doing the interest and, and right. that type of thing and the late fees and stuff so. and then the liability yeah. right. Right. goes right. along it with it very easy to understand. yeah jay so yeah. here's some of the charges that i see on ledgers and here's going to be a problem when you get a debt dispute mm -hmm. we send the ledger over while the ledger may be in different language than our letters, that's where the problem comes. Um, do you really have to show an interest figure when being off a dollar is a liability? Can't you just say plus interest? A lot of associations do not have the right to charge late fees. It's not in their documents. But I see on ledgers, late fee. Are they really meaning interest? Or are they really meaning late fee? Well, I, yeah, that's a semantics issue, but I mean, to me, a late fee is a late fee, and interest is interest. Two but, different things. And then, of course, you you can itemize. You know, here's the assessments that are due as one um, transaction, and here are the other transactions: the ones for interest, the ones for late fees. But do you yes. have to actually in your ledger say what that interest figure is, what that late fee figure is, what the management company fees are, um, and what the, and, and fine, I guess fines you would well, have to. Well, the management company fees, we actually, yeah, we disclose in all reports, but as far as, do they have to do it a certain way? No. Is it, 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 it would be just principal? So when there's a, in the, if the industry gets sure. trained right. to show principal only, and you put a warning, this shall not include interest, late fees, costs, and attorney's fees, and other monetary obligation of the association, but fines and assessments is your total. It's easier when you do the balance carry forward. It's also like we have actually some um, documents, the way they're defined, the manager company cannot charge a fee that comes out of late fees. We actually have a few with decks written that way. So they should not be showing that separate and the late fee separate because the two combined is an overstatement. So I think it's dangerous to show anything other than principal signs. Well, it is dangerous, but then you have pragmatics. Right. That's what um, I was going to say. The, the pra that's yeah. not where I was going to go. I think practically you all have the issue where the board expects, if you're setting a late notice, you're giving a total of what's owed. And if you're not including interest and late fees and whatever other collection costs that you're able to charge, 
think you're going to have irritated boards that you're not collecting what their documents yeah. allow. But However, you can still collect it without putting that. I'm talking about ledger content. Yeah. Not waving amounts when you write demand letters. Of course, you're going to calculate the interest and the late fees and everything in your demand letters. But why can't the ledger have a very simple principle only? So if it's, we know it's principle, it's easy to back in when you know what the amounts were per month. Well, I, I mean, if your accounting system's sophisticated enough, I mean, you could have, and even unsophisticated ones can do it, you have a separate transaction for the principal, a separate one for the late fee, mm -hmm. a separate one for the interest. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of pick and choose probably, maybe, depending on how sophisticated your system is at that point, to generate a report. Generate a report with just principal. Generate a report with principal and interest. Generate a report with principal, interest, and late fees. Well, I think you know. for, for us, anyway, um, if there is ever a doubt, like with what the, because the, some say, you know, 18% per annum plus $25 after 60 days or whatever stupid writing's in there. But if you're in doubt, I mean, why would you not call your attorney and just ask them, right. hey, am I calculating this correctly? Or, you know, I have one association, I don't charge any late fees because I was charging them wrong for a while and I got corrected. So now we just let him do them. <laughs> yeah. Well, this actually, to me, sounds like it goes back to the let's work together and make sure that all of our ledgers have everything line item now as far back as we can because eventually we're going to swap contracts somewhere along the line and it's not going to help anybody or you know, statements start with a zero balance that shows you all the activity. But are, yeah. are your all's program set up so even if your ledger has just the principal but let's say you're then sending a late notice to someone because they're delinquent can you have that kept somewhere else where that's calculating interest and late fees? My understanding no. is once that interest and late fees goes on there, it's on the ledger. So I think it. Well, but it we have the ability like with our system. If um, an owner, say, I had this is a prime example. We had one owner that paid on the um, 30th. The deposit went in on the 31st. Statements went out on the 1st. Um, but the board agreed to waive that late fee. So that late fee was waived per the board. So that we have just a calculation there, board approved to waive this, and then it does the, the um, offset for that late fee. Right. So we track that, but we don't, you know, I can't keep them separate. It's all in one ledger. But having it as separate line items helps. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, they're all yeah, separate because, yeah. then, sure. because then the paralegal or the attorney can or determine, manager. or another manager can determine, okay, these are actually the maintenance fees that are owed, that mm -hmm. are delinquent, and these were the attempts at late charges and interest that may or may not be correct when it comes right. time to file a lien. Right, right, yeah. The interest is usually not that much to worry about. But yeah, look, it's not worth of a penny though to, work, to make a mistake. Well, you're worth a thousand bucks. Make the interest off. Late fees are pretty pretty standard. Fifteen, twenty-five, fifty bucks. That's easy to calculate. But the interest, I stay away from doing that until I go to you or somebody. And, 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 and you know, thinking back, most of the documents that I have have a set fee right. instead of the interest, and it is, it is. I have done that at different places to put the interest on this. It's not worth it for a thousand dollar fine. No, no. That's right. One of them, I remember when I first started doing it. One of them said eighteen percent. So I charged eighteen percent per month. Instead of one no, no. Oh, yeah. They had a fifty dollar fifty five cent. Like, that statute of limitations is over. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> thank, goodness. <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah. That's my mess up. Bill, that was great though. Yeah. I, thank I, you. I appreciate it. And I'll get that outline to you about the. 
allowance account. Yeah, you so, can just attach it to her know, presentation. We'll talk. Be great. We'll talk and we'll get it we talk. done yeah. for you. Sure. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. So, unless you all have something else, so you know, there's one other statute that can get you, and that's the Florida Deceptive. Uh, yeah, FDUCTA. The FDUCTA, yeah. Mm -hmm. Florida Deceptive and Unfair Trade Practices oh, okay. Act, and that that has a private right of action, which means not only the government can go after you, but an individual that's been affected by it, and uh, that it, it's a pretty small. Not many provisions in it, but all it says is you can't engage in unconscionable practices or it's unconscionable, deceptive practices. Or deceptive what does that mean? Unconscionable, good, deceptive good, good question. You'll we'll spend thousands of dollars <laughs> arguing over it in front of a judge. Right. What is so a deceptive practice? Don't get in trouble with it. <laughs> you know what? A good, a, a good example is because we actually have a case that we're getting ready to file. Um, as a plaintiff, though, for, for a property manager that's done a lot of horrible things, which isn't a regular practice. But we're, we're representing the association. Yeah, we're representing the association. Um, Thank you. And one of them is the contract specifically lays out, you know, demand letter, notice of intent to lien, you know, flat fee services. What this particular property manager was doing was upcharging those. So we'll say $50 here, they're charging the owner $75. <laughs> For this, when the contract specifically says this, they're paying it. That's that that right there, in and of itself, is it's a it's it's a it's not a management company here, but they right. are, they're she. It's a developer's management company yeah. that they created. They also chart, started a signed a ten year contract prior to turnover, I believe. Oh, the yeah. 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 yeah, there's a lot of there's a interesting things to this yes. case. Yeah, but. The point of today was not so you leave here with your head hung low, like, oh, this violation, this violation, when is the statute of limitations up on this one? Please walk away from here knowing that you have a support team. We're all here. We work together. We're all in this county. We're working on these cases. So, you know, we're happy to share information when these things are happening. If you're getting sued by one of these attorneys, share what happened. Don't be embarrassed because it's a learning lesson. That's how we're able to talk about it because as attorneys, we see the learning lessons. We've all made the mistakes. So, you know, we're really happy you all came today, and I hope you got something out of this without just walking away scared and thinking, oh, shoot. No, we're going to go home and start drinking heavily. But think about your policies. Talk to your other management personnel and put those policies in place to really protect yourself as much as you Thank you, Sonia.